What is up, Freedom House Church? How is everybody doing today? Now, listen, if the 930 service is more rowdy than you, we're going to need to up that a little bit. Let me ask you that again. How are you doing today? I mean, you guys have had more coffee. You've probably had two meals already. So I expect you to be a little bit rowdy in here. Well, as you saw on the video, uh, my name is Penny Maxwell. My husband, Troy, and I are the senior pastors here. If you are new to Freedom House, I just want you to know how we do things here. We have live communicators on every platform of Freedom House. We're not a video venue. We believe in training up and raising up leaders. We also believe in letting people use their gifts. So you will see live speakers on all of our platforms because we want you to have a live, fresh word from God. I want to welcome you today, and I want to welcome everybody that's joining us online. We've got North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, New York, California, Illinois, the Netherlands, and El Salvador. Welcome to Freedom House. Well, they they told me that I had to rep for Friday night because how many of you know what Friday night is, ladies? We have Dr. Alveda King that is going to be with us. She was on the front lines with her uncle, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, She really helped some things to happen in this country. She's going to be sharing her story. She's going to be talking about what it looks like to dream, even when it seems like your dreams have been smashed. So I'm excited for her to be here for Authentic. So I got my Authentic t-shirt on. You see my Authentic t-shirt? And then I thought, well, I better pull my Authentic hat out too. So they told me I had to rep. So I am repping Authentic. So ladies, if you have not gotten your ticket, make sure you do so for Friday. Also, grab one for a friend who you know needs to be here because it's important that we all gather together. Something miraculous happens when we all gather. God does something in the life of his girls, and we have seen miraculous miracles take place. We've seen people delivered and set free. So you do not want to miss it. You know what else I'm pretty stoked for? Is we are in the book of James, and James is one of my favorite books of the Bible. If Proverbs is the Old Testament book of wisdom, James would be the New Testament book of wisdom. So we're going to dive in today, and we're going to talk about some very specifics that James uh, talks to us about, and we're going to get a deeper understanding of the book of James and what God is trying to reveal with us. In the first part of James in chapter 1, he gives us a greeting. It says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, the thing that I find so interesting, just starting off in this first book, is that James introduces himself as a bondservant. He doesn't introduce himself saying, hey, I am James, the mighty brother of Jesus. I had a front row seat to all that happened. I just want you to know that because of my pedigree, because of my lineage, I am coming from a position of status, and that is why you need to listen to the letter I'm about to write. He doesn't do that. He doesn't talk about all the things he's accomplished. He doesn't talk about, you know, his his smarts or his brains. He comes through and he says, I am a bond servant. He doesn't just say a servant. A servant is someone that had to stay with the master. 
He says he's a bond servant, which is a very specific delineation. He's saying, I've been set free, but yet I choose to stay with the master, not because I'm forced to, but because my heart wants to. I am a bond servant. I am bonded to my master. That's how he introduces the letter. Why does he introduce the letter that way? Because he understands that no matter what you accomplish in this world, no matter what degrees you have, no matter how smart, no matter how brilliant, no matter how talented, no matter how gifted, you never escape being a servant. You never escape being a servant. As a matter of fact, God always asks us to do things so our character can be revealed. And the reason that God asks us to serve and he always wants us to have a posture of being a servant is because it always reveals pride. Pride can't hide. Pride has to be seen. And when you are a servant, it works out and wrestles out that pride that can lie within our heart, which is why we ask you to serve others here at this church because then it's not about us. Pride makes it all about us, but serving makes it all about other people or those who are to come. That's why you see Jesus would get down on his knees. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the most majestic person to ever walk the face of this earth. And what did he do? He washed people's feet. And they weren't people's feet who had closed shoes like you and I. I mean, there was some funk going on. They had sandals on, you guys. He was washing nasty, dirty feet because he wanted to set a precedent. You want to be great in the kingdom? You've got to go low. And so that's how his brother starts out this letter. But the thing that I find so interesting, when I read through the Bible, God always asks us to do specific things, and it's not for no reason. He asked us to serve, not because God just needs, I mean, he, he could call angels down. He's trying to reveal what's inside of us and bring that out. That's why, as you heard Randy say, and you heard Pastor Troy say, that's why God asks us to tithe. It's not because God needs our money. God wants us to reveal who actually or what actually is our God. Because if we struggle with tithing, what we are saying is, God, I don't trust you. So when God asks us to do things, it's because he wants to reveal what is on the inside, which is the entire book of James. He frequently also refers to people as brothers. He says, hey, brothers, hey, brethren. In essence, he's putting himself equal with everyone else. He's letting you know his posture. He's letting you know that he's a servant. He's not coming in on top. He's putting himself equal with everyone else. There's a few things I want to tell you about his, his, this letter that he wrote as we dive in. The letter was written to the 12 tribes and those who were grafted in. Because as James began to write this letter, he sent it to Jews who had rested in Gentile areas. He wanted to make sure there were very specific things that they understood. 
And he reiterates here what he said in Acts chapter 15, that Jews and Gentiles are both part of the family. And he makes sure to address that because he has these Jews that are in Gentile areas and the gospel is starting to go out. But here's the thing. Paul specifically dealt with the Gentiles, but here you see where James is talking to the Jews and he wants them to understand some things very specifically. He wants them to understand, listen, it's not all about what you can say and how good you can look because the proof is in the pudding. That's what I would say about the book of James. It's the proof is in the pudding kind of a book. So these Jews had settled outside of Palestine and James begins to write this letter. There's a few other noteworthy facts that I want to give to you. James was not a believer in Jesus as the Messiah during Jesus' entire ministry. His brother, someone that was close to him, his brother did not believe he was the Messiah. Now, When James had his conversion was after Jesus died on the cross and he witnessed that and then he watched him rise again. That is when actually he changed and he had this conversion. And what I think is so interesting about that is if you read the book of James, there are more personal accounts of close time spent with Jesus than any other book. And what that says to me is that the entire time that he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, he was still listening. How many of your family members right now may be doubting, may not believe, but they're watching your witness. They're watching what you're saying and they might not right now acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, but the more they see, the more that's unearthed, the more that's uncovered, understand they're listening Because he recounted the whole life of Jesus even though he only believed he was the Messiah after he saw the nail prints in his hands. How interesting is that, that he writes his book out of that. James was not a New Testament church planter in Gentile territory like Paul. He was actually addressing very different things because there was a different need He was talking to people in and around Jerusalem, people that were supposed to have certain things under their belt. So you don't see him dealing with doctrine. You see him dealing with very practical things. James was listed with the believers in Acts chapter 1. James appears multiple times throughout the Bible. We know that he's the eldest brother of Jesus because every time his name appears, his name is first. And that is how they did things is they put order to whoever was eldest to youngest. So we know that that he was the oldest of Jesus's brothers. Early records also indicate that the contents of the book were written shortly before the church council that was in Acts uh, chapter 15. It was right when it convened around A.D. 49. So we know that historically. James seems to have taken the place of James, the son of Zebedee, 
because we know that James was not, James, Jesus's brother, was not one of the initial 12 because he wasn't initially a believer. But when James, the son of Zebedee, was actually martyred, when he was beheaded, James, Jesus's brother, stepped in and took his position. And we, we also know that James, who is also Jesus's brother, is called the just, James the just. We know that James the just eventually also became martyred for his faith, which he didn't initially believe, but he was eventually willing to die for it. And we know that he was stoned by the Pharisees, the very people that were supposed to be the religious leaders, but James was contradicting things they were saying that didn't line up with their actions, which is what the whole book of James is about. James emphasizes duty rather than doctrine. He does not debate religious theories, he directs his readers towards godly living. He wants them to understand how to live a godly life. From the beginning of his letters to the end of his letter, his mood is very imperative. There's an urgency. In 108 verses, he gives 54 clear commands. Seven times he calls attention to his statements by using terms that are very imperative in nature. And all, and we know that James only consists of five books, five chapters, five chapters. James has two basic themes. And what I'm going to do today, because we have different communicators throughout the month who will be speaking, I'm going to just take James chapter one, and I'm going to go down through parts of James chapter one. But James in itself deals with two specific things. It deals with the personal spiritual growth of the individual, and also it teaches us to have some sensitivity to some of the social things that we see going on. He specifically calls out widows. He specifically calls out the poor and orphans, and he lets us know that our faith without our works is dead. He says, basically, some people are all talk and no action. James is dealing with people who are inclined to talk their way to heaven instead of walk their way there. In the entire book, starting with the first verse, continuing all the way, all the way through the end, James acknowledges the lordship of Jesus Christ. And although there aren't direct quotes from Jesus, you can see the proximity just by listening to the words that James has to say. So now that I've given you some history and some context of the book, because I want you to understand as I begin to go down through this, I want you to have context of what is going on and who he is speaking to. The first thing I want to do today is I want to ask you a very important question. By a show of hands, I would like to know, I would like to see who in here would say that they would like to grow spiritually. They want to mature in their spiritual walk. Lift your hand. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. I'm going through. I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking. Okay. I haven't seen anybody even in the balcony. I'm looking at you online too. I haven't seen anyone that has said they do not want to grow in their maturity in Jesus. Not one person. 
So how do we get better at it? How do we grow in maturity? How do we grow spiritually? I can tell you James lays it out and you probably will not like the answer. Because we all want to grow spiritually. We all want to mature. But are we willing to go through what we need to go through in order to be there? Give you a perfect example. Y'all saw my husband in the video. The dude works out like six days a week. All the time, people come up to him. They don't come up to me and say this, but all the time they come up to him and say, dude, what do you do? Do you work out? Man, I wish my body looked like yours. People don't walk up to me and ask me if I worked out. People don't walk up to me and go, oh man, I wish I had your muscles. Oh man, I wish I looked like that. Why? Because I don't put in what he puts in. He's always doing the hard work. And we all like the outcome, but we don't like the work it takes to get the outcome that we want. He spends six days a week working out. He watches what he eats. He is very, very particular about his body and his health and nutrition and all of that. You know how you get your muscles bigger? You gotta break them down. What happens is you break your muscles down and when they are broken down and you don't quit during the pain, but you keep on, that actually is how you build muscle. It has to be broken down first. What happens to us when we get broken down? Do we quit? Do we stop because it doesn't feel good? I've been on a ladder before. And you know what? When I come down from that ladder, the next day I'm hurting because I'm using muscles up on that ladder that I don't typically use. So many times we are asking God to move in a situation and he's wanting to move in you. We say, God, I need you to intervene. And God's like, hey, I want to intervene in your life. Not just your circumstance, but will you let me in? Will you let me into those areas? And we say, oh, God, I trust you. I tr-. See, here's the problem with me. The problem is it's not that I don't have muscles. It's that my muscles are not used to being used the way that Pastor Troy uses his. It's not that you lack faith. It's that your faith muscles have atrophied. And all we have to do is get back in, start working that out, working those faith muscles, working those faith muscles. Well, how do we do that? I'm so glad you asked. Because James tells us, Keep reading. It says, my brethren. He's saying, hey, brothers, equal ground. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Oh, I don't think I like where you're going, brother James. Not so sure I like that. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete or mature Lacking nothing. Brother James is saying, if you want to be mature in your faith, you better go through some trials. How does my husband get better at the gym? Because all the reps he does now, he didn't start off that way. 
He had to keep pressing through even when it hurt. He had to be faithful even when he didn't want to. He had to get up early when he'd rather sleep in. You see, we want to grow and mature in our faith and we're going, oh God, help me with my faith. And he's like, you got all the faith you need. All you need is the faith of a mustard seed. But what will you do with the mustard seed? Because you don't get the fruit unless you're willing to plant it. And when it gets planted, it must die. We want the end game, but we don't like the process. What Brother James is saying is you are about to find out where you're weak because trials will reveal it. What do you do in a trial? I love what R.V. Lawrence says. He says, tough trees grow in exposed situations where the mightiest winds of heaven sweep and whirl from year to year. An experienced shipbuilder would not think of using for the main mast of a ship a tree that had grown in a hothouse where the whirlwind had never come. We say, God, I want to do something big and mighty and powerful. And he's just saying, I just want you to pass this test. Each test that we pass proves our faithfulness. 2020 was one massive test. How did you do? Did you pass the test? Did you get into fear? What did it look like? It was the great revealer. I have a, a friend who, I love her dearly. She, she told me she'd read my book seven times. And for those of you who do not know, I had a book come out last year. It's called Setting Broken Bones, How to Heal from What Has Hurt You. Powerful book. She told me she'd read it seven times. And I said to her, that's six times more than me. You've read my book more than I've read my book. Time went by and she wanted to meet with me and we sat down and we had a conversation. She was going through a trial and she was struggling to get through this trial. She was struggling and struggling and struggling. And I looked at her and I said, did you not read my book? Why are you, you read my book seven times. Why are you asking me these questions? And she said something so profound. She said, well, when I was reading your book, that was you going through it. Now I'm the one going through it. How easy is it for us to read the Bible, look at what the Bible has to say, and oh, it's such a great book. But when it comes time for the trial, we don't know how to apply what we have just read. So many Christians, we didn't pass the test. We succumbed to fear in 2020. Some of us are still living in fear. We're still afraid of what's to come. Trials locate where we are. A trial, when you go through a trial, it's like the squeezing of an orange. Whatever is in there will come out and you can't fake like it's something different. We see the fruit. When you squeeze an orange, you do not get apple juice the squeezing will always tell us where we are at. And it's not so God can beat us up. It's so God can mature us. But how many of us go through shame when we're walking through a trial? 
We withdraw, we pull away, we feel like, God, have I missed you? Have I done something wrong? And this, this fear, this shame, all of this insecurity starts to come in and we back away from the very thing that'll help us get on the other side of that trial. How many times do we do that? Trials are unpleasant to go through, but they always produce fruit if the purpose is to grow. Do we resent the trial because we're uncomfortable? Because James says we shouldn't resent the trial because it'll help us grow. What if we started to look at the trial as a really great thing? God, I'm feeling this right now, but I know there's something you wanna do in me, so I surrender to it. God, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and I will fear no evil. So many times we, oh man, we love Psalm 23. Lord, I'm walking through the valley of the, I will fear. We know how to quote it. But when we're actually walking through the valley of the shadow of death, what do we do? Most of us are collapsing because our faith muscle hasn't been worked in a long time. It's been easy to come to church, easy to go home, easy to go to our job, easy to send our kids to that nice little school until it wasn't, until everything changed. And then there's a whole lot of Christians that got caught without their faith muscles being exercised. Do we want comfort or do we want growth? Because we cannot have both, not in this Christian life. Vital faith is required by God and trials serve as its stimulus. You know, my, my daughter, I have three children, uh, 25, 23, and 21. My oldest two had a birthday yesterday. My, my middle child, they have the same birthday. My middle child's 23 years old. And some of you have heard me tell this story, but I promised the Lord after he did such a great miracle, I would never, ever stop talking about what God had done in her life. But we found out one year that she had tumors in her brain and they told us that she was gonna die, that she wasn't gonna make it. There is nothing I have been through in my life to date that was as painful as that. And when the doctor came in to tell us that our little girl wasn't gonna make it, let me tell you what Pastor Troy did. My daughter will live and not die. I believe the report of the Lord and I don't care what your report says. I believe the report of the Lord. Let me tell you what Pastor Penny, your fearless leader did. I said, ah! her brain. I mean, it wasn't a pinky toe. It was her brain. I was distraught, absolutely distraught. Now I will tell you, it took me three days to regroup and kick into gear, but when I kicked into gear, you better look out devil. I began to fight and God completely, miraculously healed our daughter. But here's what God told us. When we came to Charlotte to plant Freedom House Church, he said, if you wouldn't have been able to give birth to her, you would have never been able to give birth to this church. The worst trial I'd ever been through produced the greatest faith that I ever, ever have experienced or walked through. I hated going through that. But there is not one person that can talk me out of the miraculous, wonder-working, healing power of Jesus Christ because I've walked through it. 
Do I want to go through that again? Heck no. Heck no. I don't enjoy trials, but I enjoy what they produce. And that is what James is saying. I had no greater pain than that moment, but I've also experienced no greater faith. It produced a fight in me. Every time I walk through a situation, and there have been many situations in the past 30 years of my husband and I pastoring, many situations where we've had to use our faith. Please understand, you don't just show up one day and take down Goliath. It starts by defeating the lion and the bear because you were just faithful on the backside of the field tending the sheep. And then when God says, listen, I want you to take some cheese sandwiches, which is what happened with David, and I want you to take those. And listen, he didn't call David onto the battlefield. He called David just to deliver some sandwiches. Back to what we were saying earlier, he was being a servant. And while he was serving, he noticed an enemy, Goliath, was coming against God's army. And there was no fear in them because he had been through trials and battles and he had proved himself faithful. That is what is wrong right now in the generations that are coming up is that our kids do not know what battle looks like. They all got a ribbon on the soccer team. They didn't even count the scores. Everybody was a winner. No, there's winners and there's losers. And you need to learn what it feels like to lose. You need to know what that feels like. We start pacifying. We start overemphasizing empathy and all these other things. And we have a a weak generation that grows up and it was intentionally done. You know why? Because as long as everybody's nice and they don't know how to fight a battle, they can easily be taken out. We're all sweet and nice, but we don't know how to wield a sword. That is what Freedom Academy is all about. We said we will not sit on the sidelines. We will teach these young kids how to wield their sword. It is intentional What the enemy is doing right now by going after our children. He knows what he's doing, but what he doesn't understand is there's a church. There's an army of the living God who will not back down and who will not let the enemy have these kids. Trials require a faith that is dependent on God and on the other side produce maturity. Keep reading in James, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Faith is the great equalizer. And what, what James is saying is use your faith and come to the throne room of grace and ask God for wisdom. 
When was the last time we simply got on our knees and we prayed and we asked God for his wisdom? Not for the new job, not for the new house, not to get into that college, not to fix your spouse. But we just asked God for his wisdom. We, we, didn't, we didn't come to God because we're looking for his hand. But God, we're coming to you because we're seeking your face. There's a difference. When was the last time we just said, God, we need your wisdom? You see, the problem is not that we don't have faith. The problem is that it's not unbelief. It's inactive faith. It's faith that has atrophied because we didn't go through anything that required something of us. Or maybe we did go through something hard and we ran. We're trained from little kids to avoid pain. Our parents teach us to avoid pain. When you fall and you bust your knee wide open, what do they do? Why are you telling me to shush? I just busted my knee open. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why? Why do we go, oh, oh, don't cry, don't cry. Here's a lollipop. We don't know how to deal with pain ourselves, so we can't stand it when our children go through pain. And so we spend our lives trying to make them avoid pain because we never learned how to process it and know that pain is a good thing. Pain is our friend. It lets us know that something needs attention. And so when we go through a hard time and we start to feel that pain, the majority of people quickly want to exit that pain. I want to drink it away. I want to eat it away. I want to shoot it away. I want to snort it away. I want to entertain it away. We don't know how to handle pain. We don't know how to go through trials well. And so when we get tested, we don't pass the test. And when we don't pass, God says, you got to have a retake. Thankfully, he never fails us, but he does make us do a retake. Let me just tell you something. Never trust a person that talks a big game, but they crumble under pressure. Trials are nothing more than tests with a report card after each one. Earthly hardships and losses will always put believers on display. Always. Trials elicit a response, and that response shows our maturity level. What do you do in trials? Do you withdraw? Do you check out? Do you break down? Do you blame God? What do you do? Think about it. What do you do when you go through a significant trial? One of the things God called me out on years ago is when I would go through something really hard, I would always want to pick up the phone and just call my husband if he wasn't with me. And my husband was really great one time. Although at the time I didn't think so. I was quite irritated. <laughs> but when I called him, he said, well, when you brought that to God, what did he say about it? And I said, what are you doing? Like, you're my husband. I, like, I called you. I called you. And he's like, why did you call me? I said, 
because you're my husband. And he said, no, 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 break that down. You called me to make you feel better. You called me to console you. And I don't mind doing that second. But the first person you should have called on was your God. I'm like, daggone it. It's the second time in 30 years you've been right. How many times do we do that, though? It's, it's easy to pick up the phone and call somebody that can't change the situation, that can't turn it around. Tests do not feel good, but they are for your good. Now, I want to explain something. There's a difference, as James spells out, there's a difference between tests that we go through, you know, trials that we go through, and things that we bring about on ourselves. Sometimes we call things tests and they aren't, they aren't tests, they're disobedience. If, if somebody came to me and they said, hey, we're struggling financially, we're just going through a test right now, and I said to them, well, are you tithing? And they said, no, I, I would say, you failed the test. You're dealing with what you're dealing with because of disobedience. It's disobedience, that's different. Tests are also different than temptations. Tests are meant to bring out the best in us, and they can be from God. Not always, but they can be. Temptations are meant to bring out the worst in us, and they are never from God. God does not tempt us. James says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Don't say the devil made me do it. Then when desire has conceived, then it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. There is a difference between temptation and trials. Now, I want to give you these real quickly, and then I'm going to close. I want to give to you the top five temptations of women and the top five temptations of men. And I think it would behoove you to write those down so you can know in order of the things that men and women struggle with. Because if you know these are your struggles, you should go with your spouse or you should go home if you're single and you find a game plan of what to put in play if you know these are the top five temptations. Women, first one is comparison. Second is jealousy. Third is discontentment. Fourth is control. And fifth, you know it had to make the list, gossip. What things can you put into play if this is your default? What things? Men, don't think I forgot about you. First is money. Second is sex. Notice how that was not on our list. Third, pride. Fourth, envy. Fifth, 
Lust. Now, when I say lust, I mean consumed with desire. It's not necessarily sexual. It could be power, position, fame, or recognition. Each time that we say no to temptation, it builds our muscles. Each time we say no, it is much easier the next time when we get in that rhythm of saying no, no, no. Now, when I started looking at these two lists, I noticed that there was something in common. All of the women's, if you break it all down, it all boils down to insecurity, which is why we compare, which is why we gossip, because we've got to tear somebody else down to make ourselves look good, which is why we're discontent, because we want what somebody else has. It all boils down to insecurity. When I look at the list for the men, it all boils down to identity. Identity. And I started thinking, man, back in the garden, when Adam and Eve, when a curse came in the garden, what did God say? He said that women, now, where you were, your place that you were, that is now removed from you, and now you've got to come underneath man, and you will serve man. What do we try to do? We dress a certain way. We act a certain way. Everything is about trying to attract that, to feel like we've got our place back. When God says you already have your place back, it is a rare thing these days to see a confident woman that knows her place in the kingdom. I'm not talking about the Nancy Pelosi brass stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a woman that is confident in her place that knows she is called to stand alongside man, not to be a man. Identity, same thing. That was what was attacked in the garden. God said to Adam, no longer will you have all of this. You're gonna have to work for it. In essence, prove who you are. That was under the curse. God came in in Galatians and Jesus restored us back to our original blessing. But some of us are living under the curse still. We've got to build our faith muscle and say no. We've got to say no, no matter what anybody else has to say about it. No, I'm not going to that movie with you. No, I'm not going to listen to this kind of music. No, I'm not going to talk about her at work. No, I'm not going to get on the computer late at night and start surfing when I know what could happen. I know the top five temptations for me as a man. I'm going to flee. The Bible says that whenever temptation is before us, God has always made a door of escape. The door of escape is saying, no, I'm not going to tear that woman down. I'm not going to judge her. I'm not going to critique her. That is one of the things I love about authentic women is we support each other. We encourage each other. We are not intimidated by each other. We are inspired by each other. And when you are inspired, that is healthy. When I see somebody succeeding in a particular area, man, that inspires me because we are all brothers and sisters. We are all God's kids. And if he did it for you, then by golly, he'll do it for me. So what is there to be insecure about? But that is a seed I'm constantly working out of the women. 
Let me just tell you what happened with us. Pastor Troy and I were tested beyond belief in 2020. When the George Floyd stuff started happening and everybody was rallying around BLM and we got on the website and we started reading what BLM was, the number one thing is they wanted to destroy and dismantle the nuclear family. Number one agenda on their website. Next thing, the three women that started it were all lesbians. So they were pushing an agenda, destroying identities. And I'm reading all of this and I'm like, what has gotten into people? They let the fact that black lives matter, they hijacked that saying, took it as their own. And it was like the Trojan horse got pushed into the church. And so the enemy started coming out of the Trojan horse and people didn't even know they were being deceived. Because it sounded good. I mean, it looked good. I mean, shouldn't we love black people? Of course you should. But do you need a slogan to tell you that? God already said it. So what we saw happening, we saw the George Floyd stuff coming. We saw the rise of that feminine, feministic, not feminine, that feministic spirit, demonic spirit start trying to rear its ugly head. We saw where the government was coming in and overreaching and shutting churches down. Some areas were shut down for a year. And then they came in and they masked everybody. They masked our children. The psychological effects, nobody knew. But God started speaking to us. And we looked around all of Charlotte. And we said, surely there has to be a church that is speaking up against this nonsense. Surely there does. We didn't see it anywhere. And God said, you're called to be the tip of the spear. You stand up and you speak. So we got up. We got up. We didn't care if we lost followers. We didn't care. I mean, we were called granny killers for opening the church. I mean, bigot, racist, you know, homophobe, because we spoke against all the agendas that were lined up, stacked, ready to go, because you're muzzling the church, muzzling God's people. People came to us and said, why are you speaking against BLM? You've got a large black population in your church and you're gonna hurt people's feelings and upset them. I said, last I heard, pastors are supposed to shepherd the sheep and keep them from going off the cliff. This agenda is wrong. Although the, the ideology, sure, that's correct. But this is like the piped piper leading people away and we will not have that happen in our city. Call us what you will, say what you will, but we will not back down. And we started speaking out and people were leaving our church because they didn't wanna, they didn't wanna go against the BLM because they had put up their black square. They didn't wanna go against the rainbow because they, they had posted it to Virtue Signal. They didn't want to go against this, this anti-God feminist spirit because girl power. All of these things that were happening, we said, if you want to wear a mask, great. But the rest of us, we ain't wearing them. 
If you want to wear it, that is your choice. This is the United States of America, but we are not forcing people. You know your health story. You know your history. That's on you. We're not called to be your babysitter. We're called to lead you. So you know what happened when we started speaking up? We had 40% of our church walk out. 40%. It doesn't feel good when people you have loved and you have served beside question you, wonder things about you, and they turn and they walk away from you. But God said to us, do you love the church more than you love me? Has the church become an idol and you're so busy protecting the church where you're not speaking up and saying what needs to be said because you wanna please people? Or do you wanna please me because you're gonna need to be the first in this city that rises up and says something? Because we were looking and we couldn't find anybody. We're like, why is nobody telling the truth? 40% walked away. But here's the thing. We went through a test. We went through a trial. My husband got up and he said, if we have to start the church over tomorrow and we have to be like Gideon's army where we shrivel down, we will go out and we will defeat the Midianites. Now, what we weren't prepared for, we were just being obedient. Like Abraham, when Abraham went up to the mountain and God said, you're gonna need to sacrifice Isaac. He's like, but wait, but wait, you promised me this. Freedom House was a dream that God had given us years ago. Yes, God had promised us that. He, he had promised Isaac. But he said to him, he said, listen, is Isaac more important to you than me? Anytime we erect an idol, God asks for it. Do me a favor, I wanna ask you this question. I want you to see something. If you came to this church in 2020, 2021, or 2022, I want you to stand on your feet right now. Do you know what happened to that 40% that walked away? God replaced it with 60%. We had no idea that would happen. We had no idea, the rest of you can stand up too. We had no idea that that would happen. All we knew is that we had to pass the test. We had to be faithful. Would you close your eyes and bow your head? I want you to hear this. Many of us are reading our word, but it's not just enough to read God's word. Will you let God's word read you? Because many of us know the right things to do. We know the right things to say. It's not just enough to read God's word. Will you let God's word read you? How many of you right now are in the midst of a trial? Just raise your hands up. I want you to keep them up. You're going through something, and man, it feels heavy. It feels like a lot of pressure. How many of you also lift your hands up? If you're just, you've, there's a temptation and you just want to lick it. You just got to come through it. You just got to, you just got to walk through it. 
You gotta walk through that temptation and it's been hard, it's been difficult. Lift your hands up. How many of you in here, you've just been feeling a lot of pressure? Like things are piling up on you. You're having a hard time. Lift your hands up. How many of you in here, you know that, that Jesus hasn't been in the first position? Maybe the cares of this world or maybe you've been inconsistent on some things and you know you need to come back. You know you need to get that right. I want you to lift your hands up. If you need a fresh touch of heaven today, I want you to lift your hands up. We're gonna sing this song right now and I'm gonna sing this over you and we're gonna dismiss in just a second. But I want you to understand how to fight well, how to go through the trials and come out on the other side. Can you sing this song for us? They say this mountain can't be Come on, did somebody tell you that? They say these chains will never Does break. it feel heavy? Does it feel unbreakable? Come on. But they don't know you like Oh no, do. come on. There is power in your name. We've heard that Just there lift is your hands no up. That's the way through. Just lift your hands right We've now. We've heard the time lift will them. never Come on. Come on. They haven't seen what you oh, can you do. do.
Heavenly Father, right now we just proclaim your word over our lives, Lord. We believe it. We believe that you are mover of mountains. You are the healer. You're the one that overcame the grave, God. You took the stripes upon your back, God, for our healing, and we believe that today. Lord, we know your word does not bring back void. Lord, you laid it all out for us, and we believe it today, God. Remove the scales from our eyes, God. Let us see your truth, your light. Lord, let us walk it out. Let us not just be hearers, but let us be doers of your word so we can proclaim that to others, God, and we can show them who you are because we know you are the miracle worker. We give you praise for today. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Come on.